Well, good morning, church. The Lord be with you. It is good to gather this morning for worship, whether you are with us in person or online. And in the name of God the Father, and of God the Son, and of God the Holy Spirit, welcome to worship this morning. Today we are missing Pastor Nate, who is actually out at General Synod right now. And we're also missing Jess Mix, who is at home with COVID recovering. She's okay, but we are extra grateful to this team behind me right now who is stepping in to fill the void. Can we give them a love? Well, today, friends, is Trinity Sunday. And so I invite you to hear these words from the book that we love as our call to worship this morning. Ephesians chapter 1 says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He also destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to his good pleasure and to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely bestowed upon us, in the beloved so also in him you who have heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and have believed in him you are marked with the seal of the promised holy spirit and this is the pledge of our inheritance towards redemption as god's own people to the praise of his glorious name thanks be to god i invite you to stand and let's worship together immortal invisible god only wise Oh, 
Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct persons in perfect unity, our triune God from and throughout eternity, 
Today, we remember the prayer of our Lord that those who would call themselves followers of Christ would be one, that we would strive toward perfect unity and love as a reflection and a compelling witness of you. We confess that we have not always done this well, that at times we have been brash in our speech rather than thoughtful, dismissive of others rather than curious, distracted by our partisan and ideological camps rather than centered in Christ, and attentive to your voice rather than grounded in the truth. Forgive us, Lord, and help us by unity, grace, truth, and love to be a strong witness of our triune God, a compelling community that draws people to you and helps one another to become more like you as we worship you in spirit and truth. Lord, as you gave utterance through your servant, Reverend Nate, last week, we are reminded of the powers and the principalities who oppose you by stirring strife and division and ideologies amongst us. And we remember the words of the scriptures that teach us that evil actively seeks to destroy and maim and hurt humanity and creation. And that sometimes humanity cooperates with those powers and principalities. We look forward to the day when, it is, when sin and evil is completely vanquished by and through Christ. But until then, our hearts ache with those who suffer both globally and locally. We lament the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. We lament the loss of life that lingers in the hearts of the survivors and families in Uvalde, Texas. And we lament the illnesses and injuries that wreak havoc on our very bodies here in this community. And we lift up all of the laments in our hearts at this time. Lord, from lament we come to hope because we know that in, in the cross, victory was won. In the resurrection, your victory has been declared. We live in hope for the day when Christ returns to set all things right. And until then, we pray that you would make us instruments of the restoration, healing, and hope in Christ Jesus. And that in doing so, we would become one as you prayed. Amen. Yeah. 
does love us, and we love God too, and it is in that shared relationship that we are called to love one another as well, here as a family of believers. And it is in light of that that I say, the peace of Christ be with you. Please share a sign of that peace with one another as you are able and comfortable. The Lord be with you. My name is Tiara. I am one of the pastors here. If I have not yet met you uh, here at Fellowship, um, where our mission is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. Oof. <laughs> <That's a> mouthful. <laughs> um, so just a couple of things for us this morning in the way of announcements. Uh, first, if you are new with us, we would love to connect with you. Uh, and new meaning you're here for the first time, or maybe you've been here for a few Sundays and you're ready to connect with us. Um, there are some great folks over at the Welcome Center who would love to connect with you. They have a connection card that you can complete and pass along to them um, this morning as you're on your way out. Um, for those of you who were with us last week, either in person or online, uh, you may have heard that and noticed that we partnered with West Ottawa to support a therapy dog, a new therapy dog in Makatawa Bay Middle School. Uh, so last week we got to meet Mackie. That was a treat, right? Yeah, Mackie was adorable. And apparently you thought he was adorable too because together we raised something like $1,200 and counting. So, uh, yeah, huge. Uh, so we're immensely, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> 
so we are immensely grateful for your generosities toward um, toward West Ottawa, also toward specifically Mackey, um, and also your ongoing generosity toward the Fellowship Reformed community. Um, as we move toward the end of our fiscal year, which wraps up at the end of June, uh, know that your end of fiscal year gifts would be greatly appreciated to help us close the year well. Um, so at this time, I want to invite up Bryce Vanderstelt, our Minister of Youth and Young Adults, to, uh, to join us here. But as he's making his way up, which is apparently very fast because he's, like, right there. Uh, <laughs> very sneaky. Just come yes. from the back. Uh, so we, um, we are sending um, our young people off on mission trips. Um, our middle school students are heading to St. Thomas soon. Um, and our high school students are going to West Virginia to do flood relief work, uh, new flooring, um, something called rock, which I hear is very strenuous for them. So, uh, so we're super excited. Uh, pray for them, pray over them, um, and send them off well. Uh, but Bryce, I hear there's some really cool stuff that we want to celebrate in our community today. Yes. So we are at the end of the school year, and we have a tradition of celebrating our graduates. So today is graduation Sunday, and we've started a tradition over the last few years that we ask graduates of high school, of college, to submit a picture of themselves and answer the question that we will all inevitably ask them of where are you graduating from and what are your plans in the fall so they have submitted these we have a bunch of them so we're going to play a video and then after that video where you can read everyone's plans when the video is done i'm going to invite a number of graduates that i see in the crowd to actually come up front and then we'll pray for you all all right but first we're going to watch this video of our graduates
That's a lot of... That's a lot of graduates. If you are a graduate, uh, high school, college, we'd invite you to come up front. Come join us on the stage. Don't be shy. I see you. Come on up. And it's hard, really, after eight years here, it's hard. I'm sure you guys who have been around that long or longer, I look at some of the, even the college graduates, and I'm like, oh, we had them in youth group. But I say it's amazing to see how they continue on. Here we go. Yeah, as they are all filling in here. So we have some graduates from high school, some graduates from college, but we also have some seminary graduates and some grad school graduates, including two of our, our very own here, both uh, Jackson Nikolai and also Bryce Vanderselt finished their MDivs at Western Theological Seminary this year. So round of applause for them. Uh, and, and Bryce, I, I remember asking you this question before, but how many credits? How many credit hours is that? Eighty-seven. That's eighty. That's like three master's degrees. That <laughs> you deserve all the coffee in the world after that. Here, <laughs> I'm looking at this group. I think everyone was in, but I wanted to offer. Was anyone not in the video that would like to share their plan? I think everyone was in it, right? Wonderful. Good. Uh, so we're, you know, they're more important than I am. I'm going to get down here. Uh, I want to invite you guys to, if you're comfortable, extend a hand towards these students, and we're going to pray for them quick. Let's pray for these graduates. God, we give you thanks uh, for the gift of an education. We give you thanks for the gift, uh, not just to learn knowledge and facts, but through an education, we learn about your world, and we learn more about the creation that you've put all around us. So we give you thanks for education. We give you the thanks for accomplishments, for such meeting such long-term goals. Uh, this is a huge accomplishment for these graduates. And God, as they take this moment to give thanks and celebrate, we know that it inevitably leads to the wondering and looking to the next chapter of their lives. And God, we pray that they would sense the Holy Spirit upon them, that you would guide their steps, that they would... Uh, follow the direction, whether that's into another academic pursuit, whether that is into uh, a work experience, whether that's just all the new relationships that will be built in this next part of life. God, we pray that you would guide them, that they would continue to grow in their faith, that they would continue to mature into the sons and daughters of you that you have made them to be. God, we are thankful as a community to be a part of their story, and as they uh, go all these different directions as they spread your love to uh, different schools and different places. Uh, we pray that they would know that they are not alone, that we as a community continue to love them and care for them and pray for them. And we pray that even if distance separates us from them, that they would know that you are with them every step of the way. So we give you thanks for these graduates. We thank you for the relationships that they have with so many people in this congregation. And thank you for the chance to take uh, time to acknowledge them. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's give them one more hand. Yeah. So, one more note before I lose you guys. Uh, if you've graduated from high school, if you look when you walk out from the Welcome Center, there's a table. They say congratulations on it. Uh, after the service, feel free to grab those. Those are gifts. For you guys. So I will release you from the awkwardness of the stage. Thank you guys. And as we go, uh, at this time, we will also be dismissing our children, uh, to the, our youngest, over to children and worship uh, so they can head out now. And as we 
send our graduates out, as we send our kids out, I invite you to stand, and we are going to sing a song of blessing over all of our kids and us as we continue to hear the message. Let's sing. Well, thank you, Bryce and Tierra, and congratulations to all of our graduates. What a fun time of year it is, and thanks be to God for that. This morning, we have the great opportunity together, friends, to begin a new summer series, as you may have noticed on the cover of your bulletin, a series called A Questionable Life. And in this series, we're going to lean into some of the most fascinating and profound questions asked in the good book. There's actually, believe it or not, over 3,000 questions asked in the Bible. God asks questions. People ask questions. A snake asks the first question. People ask Jesus approximately 180 questions, and Jesus offers back another 300 more questions. The questions are wonderful. Questions like, who's the greatest? Why are you so afraid? Where does help come from? And can these bones live? As we ask these questions, we are living a questionable life, and we want to be a people who are open to, even eager to, ask and answer these deep questions of life together. Today's question in particular is one that stands behind and before all other questions. It just might be the most important question ever asked. The context of it is Jesus on trial. First, he stands in the Jewish courts, and now he stands in a Roman palace before Pontius Pilate. And as I read the text today, you're going to see behind me these images of art representing the two scenes in which the story unfolds with Pontius Pilate speaking occasionally to a crowd outside the porch and then otherwise speaking face-to-face to Jesus. Hear these words from the book that we love, John chapter 18, starting at verse 28, where it says this. Then they took Jesus from Caiaphas to Pilate's headquarters, It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the headquarters so as to avoid ritual defilement and to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered, If this man were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your own law. And the Jews replied, 
we are not permitted to put to death, put anyone to death. This was to fulfill what Jesus had said when he indicated the kind of death he was to die. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you ask this on your own accord, or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate asked, What is truth? After he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and told them, I find no case against him, but you have a custom that I released that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They shouted in reply, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a bandit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What is truth? What is truth? That's the question of the day. And just when you thought you were going to shift into summer vacation, beginning with a mental vacation, we get slapped in the face with this question. Epistemology. What is truth? Where does truth come from? And how do we know it? It's the question that actually stands behind all other questions. And before we are able to offer an answer to any other question, we must first either intentionally decide or accidentally assume some kind of epistemology. And so Pontius Pilate was on point. What is truth? When a religious mystic says that God is the sound of one hand clapping... Is that true? What is truth? When a business person declares that the customer is always right, is that true? What is truth? When one generation says of the next that the world is going to hell in a handbasket, is that true? What is truth? If I'm honest, it was soon after we settled on this particular series a questionable life, and this as the first question, I quickly began to regret it. (laughs) Who am I to name truth? And how could we ever do it in a mere 20 minutes on a Sunday morning? Only a fool would try. Yeah. (laughs) Well, friends, let's try. Let's be fools just for a bit. To get us started, I love what Leslie Newbegin says in a little book called Truth to Tell. Leslie Newbegin is a well-respected Christian leader, and he says this. He says, the effort to know the truth involves struggle, groping, 
and feeling one's way forward. We search for clues. And if they are to be useful, we have to believe in them. At least provisionally, we believe in order to understand. There is no guarantee against error. All of our knowing is the knowing of a fallible human subject who may be wrong, but who can only know more by personally committing to what he or she already knows. All knowledge is personal commitment. So in the spirit this morning of knowledge as personal commitment, I want to offer to you today my ever-developing personal creed or credo on truth. It's what I think I know so far. And I offer it to start the conversation today. There's a section in your bulletin, actually, with some blank lines where you can either take notes or begin drafting some of your own answers to the very question of Pontius Pilate as he says, what is truth? I've got five claims. Truth claim number one, truth is congruence with reality. Truth is congruence with reality. My great mentor, Alan Verhey, a Christian ethicist, was one who often said that the one who defines the terms wins the argument. These students who are just standing here will encounter all kinds of different definitions of truth as they go out and enter the world. Here's mine. Truth is congruence with reality. This means that truth is not merely what I think or what most people think. It means also that truth is not based solely on the best logical argument. Truth is not proven true by popular vote or by finding some website somewhere that supports it. Truth is congruence with reality. And this means that what's true is true even if no one believes it. And a lie is still a lie even if everyone believes it. Why? Because truth is congruence with reality. As far as I can tell, every time that the word truth appears in the Bible, this is what it's talking about. Congruence with reality. So when a king invites a servant into their presence in 1 King, 1 Kings chapter 22, the king says, Tell me nothing but the truth. What the king is hoping is that the servant will speak what is congruent with reality. When God says in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 19, I, the Lord, speak truth, and I declare what is right. What that means is that God's word is congruent with reality. When the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verse 1, he says, I speak the truth in Christ, and I do not lie. What he means is that he is speaking words that are congruent with reality. And I hope you notice that in our text today, Jesus on trial, it is Jesus who brings up the subject of truth first. He often does. And he says specifically in verse 37, For this reason I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth, what's congruent with reality. Now, of course, throughout world history, there have been times in which the majority of people thought that the world was flat. There have been times where most people thought that the sun revolved around the earth. There have been people who were well convinced that the Bible supports and encourages slavery. And we've been wrong. 
this is so because truth is not merely what I think or what most people think, but truth is congruence with reality. That's the first claim I have for you today. Here's the second one. All truth is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. Before we get too far into the game of worldview sparring, this seems to be an important point to make. All truth is God's truth, which is to say that all truth is not my truth. No one has a monopoly on truth. Truth is God's, and God is ultimate reality. I suspect you've already noticed this pattern in our world, but it seems to be that there has always been a great temptation ever since the first gathering of people, the first tribe, the first church, the first nation, the first intercollegiate rivalry, there has been a temptation to think that me and my people, we have it all right. And those other people out there who are not a part of my circle, they have it all wrong. But if we read the stories that we find in the good book, we'll find time and again that truth is God's. And it's found in surprising places. If you turned to Genesis chapter 14, for example, you would be under the impression that at that point in salvation history, God seems to have only three people. Abram, Sarai, and a nephew named Lot. They are the great patriarch and the matriarch of the great religions, the great monotheistic religions of the world. They are the ones who are promised to have descendants as many as the stars. But at this point in the story, they have no kids yet. It's just them. And so Abram, one day, is returning from war, and he runs into a person named Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is introduced as a priest of the Most High God. Well, where did Melchizedek come from? He ends up being one who blesses Abram, and then Abram offers the Bible's first tithe in that particular setting. Melchizedek is not one that knows God because Abraham evangelized him. He just seems to know God. Melchizedek appears elsewhere in the scriptures as he is introduced as one as whom Jesus is in the lineage of, in the order of the priest of Melchizedek. Evidently, the outsider isn't all bad or always wrong. Consider also the story Jesus tells in Luke chapter 10, the story of the good Samaritan. Remember that story? To the insiders, that would be an oxymoron. To the insiders, there's no such thing as a good Samaritan. They are the them And they are particularly all wrong and all bad, or so most people thought. And yet, in Jesus' story, it ends up being this Samaritan who is the hero of the story. The one who does the good and right and true thing, while the insiders don't. Happens again in Acts chapter 17, where the Apostle Paul is found in a city of idols. And he is standing among philosophers of other worldviews. Stoics and Epicureans and more. And yet it is in that very place where the Apostle Paul says that God, the nearness of God, is available even to those who are far off. Today, there seems to be a tendency in our world to draw a thick dividing line between the sacred and the secular and to assume that those 
who are on the inside are all good and those who are on the outside are all bad. It's even in the story of Jesus and Pontius Pilate, right? Where there's the Jewish community outside who are presumed to be sacred. They're the insiders. And then there's the Roman Empire, which is, of course, secular. And Pontius Pilate is there vacillating between the one and the other and ends up picking a side. Meanwhile, Jesus stands there the same before both. And God's truth reigns over all. Because all truth is God's truth. No matter where it's found and no matter how we, the people, choose to draw our dividing lines. So if the first claim of today is to keep us curious and honest because truth is congruence with reality, the second claim serves to keep us humble because truth is not exclusively mine or yours or anyone's except God's. All truth is God's truth. That's claim number two. Claim number three, the human truthometer is not so trustworthy. The human truthometer is not so trustworthy. And in this case, I find Pontius Pilate to be a wonderful case in point for us of three ways in which we humans are often blind towards the truth. The first is in regard to our ego defensiveness, our ego defenses. I wonder if you've ever gotten into a debate about something and then been so committed, so committed yourself to a certain side that you actually stop seeking truth. And you start seeking only to save face. And you scrap around for any supporting argument that will help advance your point of view with or without the truth. I know I've done that. In fact, most moral psychologists are suggesting now that the human capacity for reasoning actually did not develop out of an honest pursuit of truth but rather as a nifty way to rationalize what I want to be true, regardless of whether it's actually true or not. In the story of Jesus on trial, we see it happening. There's the Jewish community outside. There's the Roman authorities inside. And neither one of them are really seeking truth altruistically. They are seeking to arrange things in ways that are favorable for them. And this is, of course, what we do as humans because we have crafty ego defense systems. That's the first reason that the human truthometer is not so trustworthy. The second reason is that we are social creatures. We are social creatures. If you go back and read the whole story of Good Friday, of Jesus on trial, you'll find that Pontius Pilate, on his own accord, declares Jesus innocent. Not once, not twice, but three times over. And then he still goes on to sentence him to death. What is up with that? He does it because he is influenced by the crowd. And we too are social creatures. None of us are unmoved movers. I wonder if you've noticed today, no one's wearing a top hat. Of course we're not. hundred years ago, most people would be. Interesting. 50 years ago, it was not by sheer coincidence that a bunch of uh, free-thinking individuals all of a sudden decided to start wearing bell-bottom jeans. No, we are social creatures. We are influenced by our surroundings. That's the second reason that the human truthometer is not so trustworthy. 
the third reason is a phenomenon called Tolstoy syndrome. Tolstoy syndrome. It's named after a Russian writer named Leo Tolstoy, which just might be a perfect example of the point. When I say that he's Russian, you likely already have some ideas running through your head about what that means and what he's like before I even say anything about him. Either way, this is what Leo Tolstoy said. He said, the most difficult subject can be explained to the most slow-witted of men if that man has not already formed an idea of it. However, the simplest idea cannot be explained to the most intelligent of men if that man has already believed that he already knows all about it. Tolstoy syndrome basically says that we humans are not typically open to truth if we think we already know it. So what is truth? Did Pontius Pilate ask his question in earnest? Or was it actually only an ego defense, a social maneuver? How long did he wait to hear an answer? Or did he not wait at all because he thought he already knew? We don't know. We only have the story as it stands, but it does seem to me that Pontius Pilate is a rather clear case in point for us that the human truthometer is not so trustworthy. Truth claim number four. Truth has a name. Truth has a name. If any of the claims I'm making today matter more than the others, it's this one. And the great irony of our text, the great paradox of all life is that when Pontius Pilate finally asks the big question, what is truth? He asks it to the face of truth incarnate. Let's put those images back up on the screen if we can for just a minute. That's the setting of the question of the day, the question of a lifetime. And at first it looks in that scene as if Jesus is the one who is on trial, but it just might be something else entirely. It just might be that epistemology itself is on trial in this scene. And the place that the question is asked is the perfect place to start. So there's Pontius Pilate posturing around with all his various ideas about lowercase t truths, and he is assuming himself to be both judge and jury. Today, we do the same thing as we offer up our various opinions on all things and even as we cast our judgments on Jesus. And yet, as we jockey around with all of these lowercase t truths, capital T truth stands right there, listening in. I realize that some might say that the thing I'm telling you right now is an exclusively Christian claim that some aren't ready to make just yet. Fair enough. But I will still say this. I'm coming to believe with my whole life while stumbling and through my inconsistent believing that truth has a name. Truth has a name, and that name is above every name. The name is Jesus, and he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he, the truth, was there in the beginning when the whole world was made, and everything that was made was made through him. He, the truth, truth in the flesh, was crucified, but it did not stay dead. 
He rose from the dead and became the center of all life and history. In him we live and have our, our being. In him all things hold together. And truth, truth in a person, will be there in the end. For God has a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and on earth. Truth has a name. Friends, if you want to know truth, I wonder, have you considered starting with Jesus? Starting with him. You've got to start somewhere. In fact, as Newbigin says in his wonderful little book, he says, when it comes to knowing truth, everything depends upon the starting point. The assumptions you take for granted as the basis for your reasoning. It's not a question of reason versus revelation, as many people think it is. The question is a question of the data upon which your reasoning has to work. If that's a little too thick, if if you're missing that, I invite you to consider instead the simple words from Karl Barth, one of the smartest people who has ever lived, who occasionally said things simply, and this is one of those times. He said, the answer is Jesus. Now, what's the question? It's his way of choosing a particular starting point, and the starting point makes all the difference in our epistemology. So there stands Pontius Pilate asking the world's most important question, what is truth? And he asks it to the face of truth incarnate. Pontius Pilate may or may not have known it, but truth has a name, and that name is Jesus part four of my credo thus far. Maybe it belongs on yours too. One more. Truth claim number five. Truth must be contextualized. Truth must be contextualized, which is to say that even while truth might be universal, its application is always particular. It's local or it's nothing. I love the story told by Frederick Beekner called Message in the Stars. He envisions a day in which God decided to end once and for all the debate about whether God exists or not. And God did it by writing in the stars a very obvious message. I exist. He goes on to describe that if that were to happen, the world would at first respond dramatically. News outlets would cover it. People would convert. Christians would pray and so on. But then he says that eventually, if that's all it was, life would go back to normal. Because if all we have is a claim in the distant sky that God exists, or if all we have is some universal idea that Jesus is the truth, eventually no one will care. What matters in our day-to-day life is not that God exists philosophically. What matters is whether God is with us and for us, and not against us. What matters on Monday morning is not the, the, the data that Jesus is the truth. What matters is whether I look to him or elsewhere for truth. All five of today's truth claims could be personally irrelevant if all they are is observed from afar and then eventually ignored. I think that's why Newbegin ends his little book on truth by asking a local question. He says, is it true here? And if so, how? The idea is that if something is universally true, 
then it will also be uniquely true to someone, somewhere, somehow. That's why I chose to deliver this message today, to offer it to you in the form of a creed, a credo, because truth must be contextualized. Eventually, you, too, will either define truth as congruence with reality, or you'll define it some other way. Eventually, you also will either agree or disagree that all truth is God's truth. And if it's not God's, whose is it? Eventually, you will either trust or distrust the human truthometer. So far, I distrust it. Eventually, and every day, you and I, we together, will either affirm or deny that truth has a name. And as we do each and every one of these things, we are proving through that truth must be contextualized. We live it locally or not at all. Because truth must be contextualized in word and in deed, I wonder if you'll join me in a particular task this morning, commissioning some of the folks in our very midst who are going out to be truth-tellers and truth-doers. This week ahead has a few fresh starts. VBS is starting, and some 65 or so volunteers will be doing that with the kids in our church and in our community. Meet Up and Eat Up also starts, where another 35 of you will be coming alongside a nearby migrant community for food and games and fellowship and more. And then others will be going out on mission trips near and far. If you are here today in one of those groups, would you please stand? If you are helping with VBS, if you are doing meet up and eat up, if you are going on a mission trip in the near future, we'd love to commission you right now. I invite you to extend a hand towards these people. They represent the well over 100 others who are joining in this work. On behalf of Fellowship Church, we commission you today, friends, to be truth-tellers and truth-doers, to be bearers of the name. May you find strength from above to contextualize the gospel and to do so winsomely. And like Jesus, may you stand in the gap and embody the truth in the best way that you are able with God's help. And all God's people said, Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. Friends, so begins our journey this summer into living a questionable life. And the first big question is this one. What is truth? I've offered my answer as a beginning to the conversation. What's yours? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you please rise in body or in spirit and sing our final song with us this morning?
Friends, as you go from this place to live a questionable life, to seek truth, to know it, and to live it, may the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you always. Amen. Go in peace.